One, two, three. The following is a Laura Flanders Show audio exclusive. Well, we are really thrilled to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm very excited to have this conversation, especially to start off with you, Pia. For our audience, we're going to get to what exactly we're talking about in this episode, but maybe begin by just introducing yourself. Who are you? How do you come to this work? Yeah, sure. So I'm Pia Mancini. I was born in Argentina and I started my I guess, activist life, professional life, political life, very early on. I spent most of my life working in politics um, until 2015 um, when we started Open Collective. And um, yeah, this is Open Collective essentially is a path for communities around the world to be sustainable. So talk about that transition from politics to business. Um, And when you were doing politics, you were calling for a new democracy. Did you did you give up? No, absolutely not. So. um, So, yes, when I was when I was more actively in politics, I was um, hoping to usher or at least to kickstart a conversation about what democracy looks like for the 21st century. Um, And where we're coming from, we were coming from, we still are is um, we were coming from this feeling that the institutions that we have are completely out of sync with the society that we live in, right? We have um, political institutions that were created in the you know, um, 17th, 18th century for a completely different um, society, a society that had the printing press as, it, as its communication technology, um, Whereas, you know, education was far from universal, right? The options for us to participate were close to zero. We had to move in, you know, courses to the decision-making centers. And we are still living under those same institutions, right? That were designed um, for an information technology of the 15th century. And so that's where we were coming from, from, you know, we need to update democracy. We need to update our political institutions for the type of society that we have today. And when I look back and I see what I'm doing with Open Collective, it's essentially, it's the same kind of conceptually is the same path. It's like communities around the world, our financial system is designed for corporations that compete in a scarcity driven economy because before collaboration needed to be kind of created, right? So we have the firm so we could efficiently lower the transactional costs of collaborating. And you create these entities called firms for profit or non-profit, it doesn't matter, but they're like institute, they're organizations that are in a territory that have a hierarchy, someone is ultimately responsible for them, but the world changed. Now we are contributing online, we collaborate online, we breathe open source, we share the product of our creativity. And we do that with people we've never met and we will never meet face to face. And so communities are stuck in this situation where they cannot get funding because they are not what the current system understands are organizational structures. So talk about that. I mean, many of the people watching and listening may be familiar with having tried to start their own business or their family did. The first pressure is where are you going to get the money from if you're not individually wealthy? And then the problems just mount. And the traditional path 
Well, as you say, it's very traditional. You're stirring things up. How? Yes. So imagine you want to pull money together to work on a project that has impact, whether that's a mutual aid group, that's a bail fund, that's an open source project. It's something that you want to do with your peers in a way where you're all collaborating and you're all sharing and you want to pull money together to support your activities because you have, again, a love fridge, right? Or you have a mutual aid group or a giving circle, or you're just testing something to see if it works, right? You're just hacking something together. And so you want funding to print stickers, to rent a space for your events, uh, to pay for groceries for those who you know, can't do it because of the pandemic or those who are in need, or to pay for rent for those who are about to get evicted or a bail fund. Who's gonna, where do you put that money? The first thing is we need money, great. So you go out and you wanna fundraise and you start getting traction and people are like, great, where, where can I send money? I wanna support you. And you're like, uh, my personal bank account, my, well, wait, my work bank account, maybe not, maybe yours, right? So that's when there's this piece of the puzzle that is missing, that it's a path for communities to receive money without having the huge burden of having their own non-for-profit, right? Because if you're just pulling money together for a project, you do wanna start thinking about accountants and lawyers. Look, I have nothing against accountants and lawyers, I promise, but it's really hard to argue that that's where we should be putting our time and our brain power, right? We just wanna do the work we, we do. So how is this different from a Kickstarter or a GoFundMe that people may be familiar with? Somebody puts out an appeal, you send money to some place online, isn't that yeah. what you're talking about? Well, you send money to a place online, but that actually has to get to someone's bank account at the end of the line, right? You sh sure, you can fundraise on GoFundMe or Kickstarter, but then after 30 days, right, Kickstarter will turn around and tell you, where do I send the money? And you're back to the same problem, right? You need a collective bank account. You need a group bank account, right, that lets you operate in full transparency, without having to have the burden of having an institutional, like a legal entity um, to do the work you do, because it's overkill. It's really overkill. So what have you created? And is this something you could call, I don't know, financial justice, fine justice? <laughs> I like that actually. Um, you credit yeah. Matt Colicello, our creative director. Exactly. Thank you for that, Matt. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's almost like imagine accessing non-for-profit status overnight. That's what we do. We give you a non-profit, like a charity that you can use for your own work overnight, right? Instead of having to spend two years filing for 501c3 status with the IRS, boom, we give you physical sponsorship as a service. We get you um, onboarded to the Open Collective platform and the Open Collective Foundation. And so it's this combination of an open source, transparent finances platform. Transparency is key in, 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 in our project. Everything is transparent by design. So you see how the group's spending the money. You see where you're spending the money. You see who's giving money to a group. Um, the non-for-profit, non our charity, the Open Collective Foundation receives the money for you and handles all the boring bits, right? It handles uh, payroll for you, it handles 1099s for you. Um, we report on your activities, um, you know, on, on our 990 and all these crazy forms that took me forever to learn and manage. <laughs> and 
I'm hoping that you don't have to do it. We'll do it for you. So it's like, imagine it's like going from zero to one. It's really kind of um, catalyzing so much social power out there for the solidarity economy, for the open source world, for all of these spaces that are, are blocked, are blocked because we are forcing them to be something that they're not. So you're creating a platform for what Matt Colicello, our creative director, actually calls FinTech Justice, helping people to get in to collaborating, as it were, kind of into business. But you also have a vision for how those individuals might pass on the business. And you don't mean selling to Amazon or Google or Nestle. Yeah, absolutely. So when we started Open Collective, um, I wish we had Open Collective, <laughs> but we didn't have Open Collective, right? So we needed to create like a traditional C-Corp in, wait for it, Delaware, obviously, because where are you going to build something? It's not in Delaware. And so um, we created a traditional startup and we, we wished I had something like Open Collective so we didn't have to do what we did. But at the time, our options were, okay, we're going to either bootstrap this and not take a salary. We're all parents. We all have families. So for us, that wasn't an option. We wanted to do Open Collective, not like Open Collective to be a side project. Um, and so we went and we asked for money from investors. And so we fundraised um, in different stages, close to $3 million to get Open Collective, kind of the platform up and running off the ground and you know, to the scale where, where it is today. And after you know, hard work, <laughs> we're finally sustainable, uh, which is like, ah, oh, this is great. And um, now we're thinking, okay, what's next? What's, if, we, if you take a really long view on your business, on, on the impact of your project, then you need to think, how is the project gonna survive me, right? A successful mission is one that survives its founders. And that's what I wanna build. I wanna build a mission that is not, you know, tied around me, that it survives me. And so I need to start thinking about, okay, what do I need to do now to usher in like the next generation of open collective stewards? What do I need to do now to build um, a group of people that are gonna be able to take over from me, but always safeguarding the mission of the project, right? Traditionally, startups have two paths for exit. They either get sold to Amazon, Facebook, or you know, what have you, or they go public in an IPO, right? That's the, the two paths that you have normally for returning funding, for returning the money to your investors. Um, we are, because we are fearless, <laughs> we are trying to do a different path that is called exit to community. We want to find a way for community ownership of Open Collective because we believe that the tech should be owned by the community it serves, right? But doing that requires a lot of innovation and a lot of creativity in um, corporate structures, right? How are we gonna make it so that the community ends up owning a privately owned company, right? That's the path that we are in. Do you have any examples yet? Yes, there's multiple different structures that are possible. Um, I'll just name two. One of them is a trust, right? In the US, you have a lot of trusts, right? You have a trust, some a rich person has a trust for, you know, to take care of their dog after they're gone, right? That's a trust. You have a purpose. A trust has a purpose. And so there is this, this thing called perpetual purpose trust. It's a mouthful, but essentially it's a trust 
whose purpose is to safeguard a mission, right? A goal. So we can say open collectives mission is defined as this, making communities sustainable, right? And we can't be sold um, and we're not going public, right? On an IPO, but essentially this mission cannot be sold. And so we put that in a, in a trust and the trust buys open collective the structure. And then the community participates in the governance of the trust, right? That's one path forward. Um, another path is what it's called, and they're very much in vogue today, are DAOs or DAOs, which are um, decentralized autonomous organizations. So this is what the crypto space, the Web3 decentralized space is using. I think DAOs are the organizations that are coming, are definitely the way communities are going to organize themselves, right? Um, a DAO, what it does, it, it issues tokens. So you can think of tokens as shares of a company. Um, and those, the token holders participate in the governance of that um, structure. What makes sense of for us, um, so oh, as a DAO, what, what is useful for us is the flexibility that it has, and it also that it's global. Open Collective is a global platform. We, we are supporting tens of thousands of communities around the world, right? So we need something that is flexible, flexible enough to support that kind of global um, impact that Open Collective has. Just to pull us back to some areas that more people may be more familiar with, we have an idea of public ownership. Um, particularly in the 20th century, we saw companies that provided utility services, everything from water and electricity to at the end of the century broadband owned publicly, um, in some cases by cooperatives, but more often publicly owned by some agency of government. And that was done kind of more or less democratically, depending on that agency of government and presumably mm -hmm. the rules. How is this different? Aren't you, in a sense, kind of reinventing that for the 21st century? Yeah, that's interesting. So we're, we're thinking about it, but again, not we want the community to own this, not the government to own the technology. I think that's a, a big difference. So I guess, in a sense, we are reinventing this because, again, that type of public ownership structures were originating originated in a time where that was the only option, right? How, how on earth were you gonna structure, um, you know, stakeholder, multiple stakeholder ownership of the hundreds of thousands of people? It's just impossible, right? But now that it's not impossible anymore, now we have the tools to ensure, you know, ownership by thousands of people because the tools exist, the technology exists. And I guess that's where, that's, that's where, we, that's where we want to go. So two questions. One has to do with tech. You, you operate in the tech space, um, online platforms, startups. How different is that story there from uh, businesses of, of every kind, from you know cars to motorcycles to, I don't know, food delivery services? Is it simply that the aspirations of the internet seem to have gone so far away or rather where we've ended up has come, taken us so far from the egalitarian, sharing, creative, not-for-profit vision the originators of the internet had? Yeah, I think it's it's about also a matter of scale, right? I think that the, you know, the compared to brick and mortar, 
um, um, companies or, or shops, like the, the internet is really bringing that whole new level of accessibility for folks um, around the world. And it's, I guess on the one hand, the internet brought down a lot of the traditional gatekeepers. Um, and, you know, I, I applaud it for it. And, but at the same time, it also built new gatekeepers or brought about new gatekeepers um, that are these, you know, platform owners or siloed platforms. Um, so the internet is far from perfect, but it's, I guess it's, it's a different ballgame altogether, right? We're, we're playing in, in, in a different scale. And, um, and yeah, that's just the sheer numbers are, are amazing. You also talk about a different scale of value. Describe your vision and your definition of value, if you would. For Open Collective? Well, as I understand it, the conditional, you know, the traditional value, the definition of value has to do with how much you can sell your platform or your product or your company for. You're talking about different metrics, really. Oh, I see. Yeah, of course. I guess in a traditional startup, um, probably the one thing that matters the most is what is called hyper growth, right? How much can you grow at any cost, pretty much, right? And this is a blunt exaggeration, but really kind of the number everyone looks at is hype, it's growth. How much are you growing? You have like, you know, things like growth hacking and growth ninjas. And, you know, there's a whole terminology and jargon around like growing and growing and growing. I don't think it's, I don't want to grow for growth's sake. Like, what are we growing? Are we just growing numbers on a spreadsheet? Is that the thing that we want to bring into this world? Something that grows forever and ever? When is growth enough, right? When, when, when are we okay? And the path for companies that are doing an IPO or that are taking money against their growth, they just need to keep growing to justify the dollars that they're receiving, right? Um, we are different. We're not, we, we are not interested in that and in that level of growth or in just looking at you know growth for growth's sake we are interested in impact we measure ourselves against how many communities we are actually helping the stories of those communities who they are like we look at where can we have the most impact not where can we grow the most mm. right and for us when we decided to go and, and, and work very closely and, and really embedded in the solidarity economy space it was because we understand that there is where we can get the most, you know, where we can catalyze the most impact. There's, there's this acute need in the solidarity space for a, a, a platform or a technology and um, um, a financial mechanism that enables them to just really operate at a different scale. And that's what we're here for. The solidarity economy in, in the U.S. encompasses co-ops and worker-owned businesses and mutual aid and barter networks, you name it. Just the language is still not universal, try as we might. To conclude, Pia, we could talk for a long time, but I want to take you back to where you began mm. and ask you about that relationship again between the political new democracy that we need and the business and economic new democracy that we may need. Because it seems, I watched your TED talk and you say, you know, in our current democratic system, you kind of have two options, silence or, or noise. And perhaps what we've seen is a shift of 
the relationship that we have to that silence and noise in the sense that our relationship to our economy kind of takes those two paths too. Yeah. We either just become a pawn of the monopoly capital or we fight against corporations that we really can't influence at all. Um, I think of Facebook boycotts and all the rest, you know, yes for them, but these are not equally matched parties. Are you in a sense saying that our democratic struggles have shifted to the mm. economy sphere that really monopoly capital is the problem today? Well, what, what I'm saying is that I guess systemically, we need to think of alternatives, right? We need to build alternatives, right? So when you when you wake up in the morning and you're like up to, you know, up to here with reality and you want just want to fight reality because it just you're annoyed at the world and angry and it makes sense. So really what we wanted to, to think is like, okay, great, you don't want this. I get it. You don't want this in politics and you don't want this in like the economic system or the financial system or the rules that regulate how we create and share value. I get it. You don't want this. I don't want it either. But what do you want? Yeah. What do we create? Right? Because like fighting reality and being angry at reality is not going to change reality. The only thing that is going to change reality are new models, are building alternative systems. And so when I look back, the thing that joins you know, the dots in my life has to do with building alternatives, like really thinking about what are the new institutions that we want? What alternatives do we have? How do we build around this mess and create something that can, we can really use to propel us forward? And so in democracy, it had to do with new democratic institutions, liquid democracy, tech for democracy. And you know, in, in the economy, it has to do with open collective and a path for communities to have the economic power that they need. I don't think we can decouple economic power from decision-making either. Like we need communities to have economic power because we need them to make better decisions and to have the ability to execute on those decisions, right? Thoughts for those who are saying, ooh, I want a piece of this, or I want to play a role in this. What can they do? Um, so I guess the first thing I would say, look out in your own neighborhood for your own mutual aid group and see how you can support them because the networks that are being that today exist in the United States and around the world that are doing amazing work, they're there. And you can join them. And that's the first thing that you should do. And then if you want to support them, you can just go on opencollective.com and find any of the projects, mutual aid groups, giving circles, um, open source communities around the world and just support them financially. Just again, another comparison. You know, we work in the independent media sphere where we are viewer and listeners supported through donations and contributions. That's the whole model of public television, public radio. In a sense, I'm hearing something similar there, except that we want a role in governance that we don't have. Is that where media might have a model that connects? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think that um, we actually have media projects and open collective from, you know, smaller um, publications to radio shows. Um, yeah, I think, you know, independent creators like you and independent media like you um, absolutely not only need to be kind of supported, but also I think you have a huge role in becoming kind of the, the newspapers of this century, right? Like that. The, news, the newspapers of this economy, the media outlets of, of the creator economy and of the solidarity economy. Um, so there's a huge role to play there, absolutely. 
All right, I hear I hear a mission. Just remind us, DAO, DAO, what does it stand for? Uh, so DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization. And it's essentially an organization that is created and owned by the, its members. So people might think of Wikipedia, is that a DAO? Well, it's it's not, it's maybe the prequel of a DAO, but, but yes, that's, that's, that's a good model. It's, it's an organization that is created, managed, governed by its token holders. And then give us an example of the problem, the problem that you're trying to solve in the story of a, a company or a business that you feel could have benefited from the open collective way of doing things and didn't have a chance to. And so I guess my personal story, um, when we created a political party in Argentina, in Buenos Aires, um, we couldn't fundraise for our campaign because the government wouldn't approve us, right? Because they were like, you are not a legitimate political party. You need to do all of these different things that were crazy, like find 17,000 signatures in triplicate and order them manually, alphabetically, and things like that, right? So again, gatekeepers. And if I, we had something like Open Collective, we wouldn't, we wouldn't need government to approve us because we would have been able to fundraise. Um, so, so that's where I guess a lot of this started from me realizing that we wanted to make change in the world, but we depended on those institutions that we were trying to change um, in order to receive the funding we needed to make that happen. And that's very frustrating and it's unfair. It's unfair for communities around the world that the only option that they have for fundraising or for accessing money is to become something that they're not, is to become a corporation that has a president. It's like asking who's the president of the internet. I so relate. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> like, no way. <laughs> oh, all right, we're in fundraising season, so I totally relate. I mean, I relate all the time, but uh, it's, you know, media. I always say, you know, media is this plural noun. It's about something we all make together. It's about covering everybody together. And then the only way you can exist is as a corporation, which is, which is so narrow, narrow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, all right. Our conversations will clearly continue. Um, Pia, thank you so <laughs> much. I appreciate it. I appreciate <laughs> the you, conversation. Laura. Thank you, everyone. Have a great day.